when you realize that there's a lot of people who would rather maintain their jobs and their status in a party that loses than lose their jobs or their status in a party that wins. Oh God, dude, that was like, I felt like you punched me in the stomach. <laughs> It is your girl, Francesca Fiorentini. This is the Bituation Room Podcast Live. It is a bonus. I'm sorry. Just out the gate. Sorry. Um, but yay, bonus episode. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Gotcha. Gotcha. Doing something weird, probably. I don't know. Is it late? Is it early? You guys, we're going live right now because we have a very special guest, uh, Jonathan Matthew Smucker a political strategist and organizer is here. He is the author of a couple of really dope books, um, a really, really good shit. We're going to get into it. We're going to get heady. Um, we're going to talk specifically about where he's at, which is Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, which did go for Biden, went for Trump in 2016, went for Biden in 2020. And thanks to the hard work of grassroots organizers like my guest. And he's going to tell us how he did it what it was to talk to the folks on the ground and thoughts on the Democratic Party going forward, especially in the face of this coup. You guys, there's there might be a coup. We might have to like get out and protest. I already made a sign out of cue cards, okay? It's just like, it's too much. No, but uh, if you missed the news today, congratulations. You really did yourself a big faby fave, but um, Trump is trying to put the squeeze on State lawmakers just straight up going for the legislatures, Republican controlled legislatures, trying to get specifically Michigan Republicans to not recognize um, the their electors and the way their electors voted. Um, not not trying to not that that would help him. There's only 16 in Michigan. He's got to do that a lot more. Um, but in these days and I didn't know this before but you know we're all getting a civics lesson thanks to the worst president in our country's history which is that these results of the election will be validated in the coming days and every state has their process for validating and submitting the final count from their state so that is what is going on right now Rudy Giuliani was out my man was uh dripping sewer grease because he is a straight rat he is a straight rat and I, I really am trying to get his accent down. You know, I've got a, I'm bleeding trash here. I am, a, I am, what is his name? What's the green guy? Who's the green guy from Sesame Street? Uh, Oscar. Yeah, that's me. I'm Oscar the Grouch. I can't really do it. I prefer to tuck in my shirt and slash play with my dick. Um, he was next to another Trump attorney, Sidney Powell. Have you seen this woman? She's wearing like a cheetah outfit she looked like a carol baskin if like she had murdered democracy just out there and she was like crying she's like it is an abomination i don't know what she sounds like but it is abomination what is going on right now they're basically just saying that it's stealing they're continuing to say that it's stealing but their heart's in the right place and that's all that matters and poo poo cuckoo that's the kind of comedy that this show deserves <laughs> that we deserve uh but thank you so much for supporting hey you guys want to support the show 
TBR-Live on Venmo, TBR-Live on Cash App. Donate, tip us, tip me for this extra show that I have brought to you and the people who I'm going to be introducing to you very, very shortly. It means the world. Thank you so much for your tips as always. And without further ado, I'm going to bring into the Bituation Rue, a man who would not miss a strategy discussion about grassroots organizing, comedian and labor organizer himself, Mr. Nato Green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you rang, my dear? <laughs> What's going on, Nano? It's Thursday. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, uh, I got up this morning and I looked at Twitter and I saw what the trending topics were. And it, every every day when you see the trending topics, it's like, what fresh hell is this? You know, so did you see, did you see, I, this morning I looked at one of the trending topics was so 56. And I was like, what what what's happening now and i clicked on it and and a lot of times like the trending topic is some dumb sport thing i don't care about but today i clicked on so 56 uh-huh. and and it was basically the trending topic was trump supporters not understanding math and not and tweeting something without reading an article because the hill ran an article with the headline 46% of americans think trump should concede concede immediately and uh, and so Trump supporters went wild with that and were tweeting out. So 56 percent Americans think that Trump should not concede the liberal media trying to cover up. But then if you read the article, it's like 46 uh, percent of, of Americans think that Trump should concede immediately. It's not that 54 percent of Americans think that Trump should not concede. It's like. 12% of people think that Trump should not concede. And then the rest think that Trump should concede as soon as the process works its way along and the states. Sure. They're the like, not result. yet later. They're, they're just like, yeah, he should concede when the states tell him that he lost, like that the pro let the process work They're, yeah. you know? So anyway, it was like, that's every day. And then that's so 56. So they not only got the percentage wrong, but they misread yeah. What the actual article that, that's no surprise. I just yeah. stumbled on a Reddit thread, which was about um Facebook posts, like bad Facebook posts and all the people being radicalized. It is a jungle out there. And NATO, as someone who's still on Facebook, you have a responsibility, my friend. You gotta rein that shit in. Boomers mm. is boomers be cray, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I've heard that. Um but what that. what are you bitching about besides uh, Twitter trends? Which, by the way, oh. I saw Gross Point Gross Point Antifa tr tr trending this morning, and that was hilarious. <laughs> uh, so uh, today I'm bitching about my governor Gavin Newsom. Ooh, um, our our yeah, he shared. Uh, he shared. Uh, uh, you would hit it. Um, wow. So. <laughs> no 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 maybe with different hair yeah so and, but mostly the, no keep going so, so our governor gavin newsom uh uh had a um after like you know so he used to be the mayor of san francisco and so people from san francisco have been like i've been hating gavin newsom since 2002 easily um but since he like moved on to the statewide stage, he has like people like, oh, he's a progressive Democrat. He's so great. And he's dreamy. And 
he acts like fucking Christian Bale as Batman, like some, you know, just like trying to be husky all the time. Not as Batman, as Bruce Wayne. Like that's his, he's like, I don't want to be the crime fighting superhero. I want to be the like billionaire playboy vigilante. Yeah, yeah. Um, he doesn't want to do any of the work. He just wants to be there for the photo op. Right. And that is 100% how he how he gets down. And so he's been like, so people are have been so enthralled with him and what a great job he's been doing and how he's better than Cuomo fucking responding to the coronavirus crisis of like shitty democratic governors and then he had a dinner at uh at uh at french laundry um and it was a dinner it was a private dinner party with like more than his own regulations required of number of households and and people present indoors like there were pictures the staff had to close the doors because they were being so loud not masks on including with lobbyists from the California Medical Association. Gross. Uh, so the, oh the my doctors God. lobby I was wondering who should which fucking lobbyists. know better. Yeah. And, and and like these other campaign consultants. And and so then like there was this thing, you know, like so it was it was like Kardashian Island level bullshit. And by the way, French laundry, it like it really looked, you know, regular listeners of the podcast will know that. NATO Green can get down with some fine dining, but <laughs> even I have never gotten to the French Laundry. Thomas Keller famously, like he has other restaurants, like his entry level restaurants, like Bouchon. I've eaten at Bouchon. I've eaten it per se. Not I haven't eaten per se. I've eaten it at some other one. I haven't eaten it per se, per se. Yeah. Uh, uh, Thanks. So good job. No, uh, no, but, so, but like, but, holy but, but this restaurant is like, you know, it's like $400 a person and it's like a, you know, many course tasting menu. And it's just like, it is, it's three, has three Michelin stars. It's like, if you, if you look up the fanciest restaurant in Northern California, it is going to be in the top five. And so it's like such a fucking ostentatious, gross thing for this guy being like, I'm very concerned about how there are 18 million Californians facing eviction right now or whatever. And uh, and so that that happened, and then today, and he like, and he hasn't done what any self-respecting politician should do in this moment, which is like chuck himself out of a fucking window, um, <laughs> or like resign his job and you know go, go just like embrace that he's really a grifter uh, and go be a lobbyist. But instead, today, so today they just announced today that California is going on curfew to curb the spread of COVID from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. in counties that have the purple designation on COVID spread. And so that it, that's how they're going to deal with like the current COVID spike is 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew because we all know that COVID mostly spreads after dark, I guess, is the fucking dumbass idea here. Yep. So that's yeah, what I'm yeah. about. 10 p.m. Like, motherfuckers, you did that. You gave us a curfew when you changed the time. And suddenly it was 10 p.m. at five o'clock. Like we're all in bed at 10 p.m. We're like, I mean, we're in bed by five, really. Who's out? Uh, yeah, I, when I was, I was like, oh, I wonder what these restrictions are. Oh, 10 to 5 a.m.? What the fuck? This is so stupid. And can I just read? So NATO mentioned that, it, that he was dining with a lobbyist. So the California Medical Association... Um, represents and lobbies some 50,000 California physicians, lobbies for 50,000 California physicians. And you, you damn well know that it's not for like, you know, uh, making sure they can see more Medicaid and Medicare patients and uh, making sure that uh, 
insurance companies don't charge too much. It's probably not for Medicare for all. But um, yeah, fuck that guy. Uh, it's funny because here in California, you uh, like there's different places. Everyone hates Newsom. If you're a Republican, you hate Newsom. Uh, although now you probably are thanking him because you probably have COVID because a lot of the the places in this state that were not following regulations are getting hit real, real hard. But then Democrats also hate Newsom. <laughs> like my mom is the only person that likes Newsom. She's like, he could get it um, <laughs> in his Patagonia vest. <laughs> um Let's see. Uh, I just wanted to read a comment of someone on Twitch. Cody one Kenobi thirteen having to teach my boomer coworkers whom I love how to tech just in case and when we go back into lockdown. Math teacher here. Oh God. Yeah, that's what you're bitching about. That's a good. That's a good thing to bituate on. Um. Uh, a couple, <laughs> couple people giving me a hard time about drinking beer instead of a fancy cocktail. Yo, this is a bonus tonight. episode, you guys. Yeah. You got a tip for them recipes. In fact, a, a number of people do want cocktail recipes. Okay, I'm going to do a quick quick little bitch, and then we're going to bring Jonathan on. Um, Schumer needs a mask with a nose wire, okay? I can't watch these press conferences where motherfuckers don't know how to wear a mask. Get one with a nose wire. I can't see you throwing it up onto your nose. I know there are more important things, but like... It's such a bad look. Schumer's also already a terrible public speaker. He inspires no one. Uh, he is the personality of, I don't know, uh, like, do you remember Finn Crisp? Do you ever eat like a like a, a rye crisp called Finn Crisp? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what his personality is. Um, anyway, what I'm saying is it looks, it's so bad. Pelosi, who's basically been wearing like a diaper on her mouth, which is great. That's fine. Do it. But like she learned early on, just put a little nose wire. You need the nose wire. Otherwise, if you talk, it's going to fall down and you then you're going to nose cock it. Nobody wants to see that. I was going to say when you said when you started to say set up the Mad Lib Chuck Schumer has the personality of the way that I was going to finish it is uh, the Thursday New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like like not like ch a little bit challenging, but like not that challenging, but also not like not fun because it's yeah. easy yeah yeah yeah. Just like uh. yeah one time i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna totally do this saturday nope i'm not even gonna do the mini ones that i downloaded for my phone and i was like i don't know how you, you know this which is dumb crosswords you know, are dumb. <laughs> you know which crosswords i crush every single time the people magazine crossword shut up you yeah you i could me i like people magazine crossword oh yeah I, I'm going to get Eva Longoria on the answer to this one. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you? Are you going to the salon with Pelosi? Is that what's you, going on here? You know, How are you getting people? I don't. I, it's just like whenever, you know, I'm get, I get. I got to get my nails did. Nito's got a secret life. To help us talk about this political moment, um, he has worked for more than two decades in grassroots movements as an organizer, campaigner, and strategist. He's the co-founder of Lancaster Stands Up, Pennsylvania Stands Up, and Beyond the Choir. He researches populism and political realignment processes as the focus of his doctoral work in the sociology department at UC Berkeley. He is the author of Hegemony How-To, A Roadmap for Radicals, and the forthcoming book, Fuckers at the Top, A Practical Guide for Overthrowing America's Ruling Class. Please welcome... Mr. Jonathan Matthew Smucker. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you. 
Thank you for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, I didn't read the last part of your uh, bio because it was such a great intro to say a practical guide for overthrowing America's ruling class. Like that is the fucking dope <laughs> intro. What, what was it? Was it right before that? Something about fuckers? Stick it to the fuckers. Yeah, fuckers, fuckers at the, the top. Yeah, it's got yeah. the little asterisk though over the oh. U, so that you know oh. it can be listed in publications, reputable publications. So sure, sure, it yeah. can be sold in uh, uh, Hudson Children's News section. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, but you are. It says you here. You are. You were a volunteer at the Bernie Sanders campaign, and you've coordinated this um, recent effort, not him, us, which. You can tell me more about that, but I feel like it was sort of a something I've been doing on this show a lot, which is a plea to the Bernie left to be like, look, let's put it aside and and vote for Biden because we have to stop fascism. And, uh, you know, and I then, think and then hold Biden's feet to the fire. But yeah, and, and then hold Biden's feet. To, you know, one of my favorite phenomenons, I haven't been bitching this much about it, but in this whole campaign season was every time Bernie loses and then concedes and then supports the winner everyone's like fuck bernie i hated bernie anyway he's stupid <laughs> like it's very <laughs> do you, do you like, love it when, when they call bernie a sheepdog yeah, i don't even sheep, know what that sheepdog, means sheepdog is like a, a nice it's like a radical signal to like signal that you you know are more radical than other people sheepdog so yeah, you that's are... what it means i think it doesn't yeah. First of all, sheepdogs do a lot of work. And if you could be a sheepdog, <laughs> hell yeah. Like, I can't convince five people on, like, where to go to brunch. Like, if you can corral a giant, you know, field of sheep, pretty good. Anyway. Can I, <laughs> can I, so b before we uh, pivot from the thing that you just said, Jonathan, can I ask you a question? Yeah, the, go for the, it. You, so I, I, I we're, we're gonna. I think we're gonna go backwards in a second. But I want to ask you, like people, you said, you know, hold Biden accountable when, he, when assuming that he is allowed to take office and the coup doesn't happen. Um, so I think people like on the left talk about holding holding politicians' feet to the fire a lot. And I think uh, most people that I know don't really understand what that means beyond like I'm gonna tweet angrily about how I think they're sellouts, like. <laughs> what is what which you know look i do that with the best of them like i'm super down to tweet angry like i you know there are some 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 very spicy tweets in my feed about nancy pelosi and whatnot but um same same you and me bro <laughs> oh, I'm but, and, uh, and she doesn't care because that's not power right yeah I, I i did i mean you know actually what she does care about is i did the right after trump got elected I was part of a small delegation that delivered a seven foot styrofoam spine to her office nice, to ask her to nice. grow a spine. And I have heard that she's still mad about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, Checks out. <laughs> so uh, what you really but, need to do is buy her a third $24,000 refrigerator. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. So, so, so hold their feet to the fire. What does that mean? How do you do it? Well, I, I mean, it, it's a good way that you put it, right? That uh, I, I think part of the reason a lot of people don't have a conception of what that is, is because we've lived most of our lives in an era where a political left doesn't have enough power to be able to hold politicians' feet to the fire. And that's changing. Move to Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's changing. That's changing quickly. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's I think this is a really interesting thing for um, 
young folks who have gotten involved like either in the 2016 Bernie campaign or the 2020 campaign, there's a tendency to think like, oh, the Democratic Party has just always been like this. We just lost, like we're always going to lose. But the way things have changed in terms of the balance of forces in the past four years and the trajectory it puts us on is, is kind of incredible. And we can get more into that. But when we say hold their feet to the fire, we're talking about wielding power, um, leveraging power um, to, um, to create incentives uh, for Biden to do what, uh, what he needs to do. So, you know, that can be enacting a cost um, on him. Now, I think some of what's happening with this uh, administration, I, I think and I hope that on some level Biden um, and there's some indication that Schumer, who I don't ever have good ex high expectations of, but but that they get that they have to deliver on some level yeah. for everyday working people in a big way or they're fucked, right? Um, I think that they may be waking up to that. So that's on our side, right? There's this crisis. I I think and I hope that they realize that a whole bunch of everyday working class people uh, across race, young people across race, just came out to vote, disaffected low propensity voters. Some didn't, but enough did to win it. Not mm -hmm. because they love Joe Biden or the Democrats, but because they understood what an existential threat and what a disaster Trump has been to working class people. Yeah, And they, you know, they decided to uh, stop to it. That's not going to get Joe Biden or the Democratic Party anything in 2022 or 2024, because folks aren't going to turn out those years to vote against Trump. They already yeah. did it. They're yeah. only going to turn out to vote for Democrats if Democrats have delivered something. So, mm -hmm. so that's part of the like kind of objective calculus that hopefully enough people in the Democratic Party get. Um, but even if they do get it, and there is some of the indication, there's a great article by Anand, um, I'm going to butcher how to say his last name, in the New York Times uh, last Friday, that he interviewed Chuck Schumer. And Chuck had some, we're on a first name basis, obviously, uh, had some, some yeah, Chucky, yeah, he, he had some quotes that surprised me, where he basically said, look, if we don't deliver in a big way, we're going to have a Trump uh, 2.0 who's, who's even worse. And, and I think that's right. Uh, it's surprising to see Chuck Schumer getting it. It probably helps that he's afraid of a AOC 2022 primary. That probably helps him get it. There, there we go. That's the answer to your question. That's what we mean by hold their feet to the fire. Yeah, Let scare them. Power. And part of that power is, you know, AOC took out a longtime Democratic uh, incumbent, uh, power player in the Democratic Party. I don't even remember his name anymore. Um, in 2018. Crowley. Crowley. Mr. Crowley. Um, yeah. And uh, and the 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 threat of primaries is one of our biggest pieces of leverage, right? We have to be willing to take these people out. I mean, you saw it with the Tea Party, right? They took out Eric Cantor, and right. like, holy shit, they just took over. Um, so when we say, you know, uh, hold their feet to the fire, it's not just about you know raising our voices on on Twitter. Um, in, in some ways, they're totally inoculated against it. I'm not saying don't do it. I do it, you know, but but I don't mistake what I tweet for my political intervention in terms of, you know, power that sure. these are politicians, right? They operate with power. We 
we can do moral appeals, but they're not going to respond to moral appeals unless they become popular moral appeals. And that popular opinion is translated into a political force that has the potential to enact costs. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that organizing and what you need to do beyond Twitter, I mean, you your work in Pennsylvania and um, has, I think, shown us what is possible when you do, as you say, sort of dig in for the long haul. Um, you know, Pennsylvania went to Biden, not by a lot, 200,000 votes or something. Um, that feels well, less than that. I mean, it's you know, I understand that compared to 2016, there was more squeakers in certain counties in like Michigan and such. But like from where I'm at, that feels really, really small. And it does. We know um, the people that you're saying traditionally disaffected voters, working class voters, people of color, women, immigrants coming out for Joe Biden, really coming out against Donald Trump really made that difference. So how did the work that you had been building in Pennsylvania, you know, lead to this Biden victory? And what does that mean then for his mandate? I guess I want to know, you helped co-found a group called PA Stands Up. So tell me about your work and why you why you co-founded this organization. Yeah, well, I co-founded Lancaster Stands Up uh, initially. Um, a few of us here in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, um, just days after Trump got elected, um, we pulled together some community leaders and called for an emergency community meeting. It happened a week and a half after the election, sat not the Saturday after, but the, the following one. And um, yeah, why, why don't I tell you just a little bit about that and kind of the, the theory in it and then what it translated into with this election. Um, you know, we called it an emergency community meeting. We got 300 people there and this is Lancaster County. Um, it has a reputation of being conservative or it had a reputation of being conservative. It's still a predominantly conservative county, but it's it's changing and its public perception has changed dramatically over the past four years as we got Lancaster stands up off the ground. So having 300 people at an emergency meeting was was a game changer in and of itself. That was like unheard of numbers. Um, you know, you'd be lucky if you got like had a protest and had 30 people. That'd be like a big, big day. Right. Um, but we got 400 people to the next meeting, 500 to the next. And soon we were turning out literally a couple thousand people for like the protest, the Muslim ban. Um, we had a thousand people out the day after Charlottesville with only 18 hours after what happened in Charlottesville. Um, so we Good. built up a tremendous capacity um, for mobilization here. And and then <clears throat> we pivoted that capacity into electoral power as well. Um, and so what we've built with Lancaster Stands Up and now Pennsylvania Stands Up is a multiracial uh, organization, um, urban and rural, um, you know, Lancaster City, like most of the cities where Pennsylvania Stands Up uh, organizes now is majority people of color. Uh, Lancaster City, York, Reading, Allentown, um, Harrisburg, right? Coatesville, uh, these these areas, these cities. So, all, you know, a lot of people in bigger cities, and I've, I've lived a lot of my adult life in big cities, they think of uh, areas in Pennsylvania as just like overwhelming sea of white and conservative. You know, you have people like James Carville condescendingly call it Pennsylvania. My um, God. Um, yeah, these people are really strategic about winning over these areas. Um, <laughs> they're not. They've, they've lost, they've bled out these areas for the past 40 years, right? 
And uh, but these areas have changed dramatically. I don't. I don't know a lot about those areas. I basically like my knowledge runs from Flashdance to Silver Lining Playbook, and then taps out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's, it's 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 fine, you know, to not. Um, I mean, what what's what's obnoxious is when people who don't know anything about these areas purport to know everything about them, right? And write them off entirely, right? And so. Um, anyway, but we're organizing both in the city and in the county in the, 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 the county is overwhelmingly white. Um, but you know, about half our bases from the city, half our bases from the county. Um, and I think a, a couple things, I, I want to say a couple things, cause when we were talking before, um, we went on air, you'd asked me about, you know, what's maybe a little bit different about what we're doing than some of the, the groups, um, and I don't think we're alone in this. I think this this is, but I, I do think that we were a little bit remarkable, especially right out the gates. At that first emergency community meeting mm -hmm. with 300 people there, we estimate that about four fifths of the folks had never been involved in politics in any way other than voting. And some of them, not even that, right? So these are new folks. Protest is unfamiliar. Activism per se is unfamiliar. Involvement in an electoral campaign is unfamiliar. And so we, uh, first of all, we use really familiar language to promote the event. We called it an emergency community meeting. Um, it didn't have like, you know, lefty lingo all over it. It basically signaled to people like. If you don't say dialectical materialism, it doesn't count. <laughs> right. It didn't, it I didn't won't be have, there. It didn't have any lefty subcultures like brand identity on it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because I think that sometimes those subcultural identities kind of can stand in between a person and them getting involved in something they care about is that they feel like, oh, I have to become this thing that I am not. Sure. And so we took care to do that. And that's some of my background is I, I, Beyond the Choir did a lot of communications with groups for like, how do you reach a broad audience? How do you connect with working class people that you become insulated from? Yeah. Um, which uh, is a whole other topic, right? So we put a lot of that into practice out of the gates with Lancaster Stands Up. And the other thing we did at that first meeting is we said, hey, um, you know, um, yeah, and I do see the comment Lancaster's not like the other areas. Yeah, I, I will address that too. Because um, <laughs> um, uh, we are organizing in, in a lot of areas in the state. Um, it is a unique area in a lot of ways. There's a lot more small business and a lot more farmland. Um, it's more conservative uh, in in a lot of ways, um, but that's that's shifting. Um, but we said uh, on day one, we said, hey, you know, a lot of people are shaken up. Uh, we want to mitigate the damage of a Trump administration. We want to defeat him four years from now. But we're not going to stop there. We're we're going to ask ourselves the hard questions. How did somebody like Trump get elected? How did our institutions fail to stop the worst from happening? How did the Democratic Party fail? And it definitely rubbed some of the true blue Democrats in the room the wrong way. Um, but we kept them on board, most of them. Um, but we said, we've got to talk about the failures of the Democratic Party. We've got to talk about how the Democratic Party has failed or neglected to fight visibly and vocally for working people. And if we're not contesting the direction and the leadership of that failed party, mm -hmm. then we're not going to be able to win in this populist moment where so many people are angry at political authority. Um, and yes. so we had that as this kind of theory of change from the beginning. We did that kind of political education with our base and held together a pretty broad coalition that ranged from people who were more like 
Green Party or um, don't want to have anything to do with electoral politics to more like vote blue no matter who. Mm -hmm. And we kept them together with a story of like, yeah, we're not going third party. That's a losing prospect in the United States because of the two party system. But we're not going for the Democratic Party as it is. We're going to contest its direction, its leadership. And then um, finally, we pivoted our base. You know, we were protesting every week and turning out lots of people oh, wow. in early 2017. And then we we're like, that's not going to sustain itself. We've got to look to the next thing. We've got to recruit better people to run. And that's when we recruited Jess King, um, a, a populist candidate, working mom um, who, who ran a, a historical campaign, didn't win for reasons I can talk about, um, but did better than any Democratic candidate in the history of our of our area. Um. I mean, I'm, I'm really curious then how in 2020, four years later, you're sowing these seeds, seeds where like, you know, you didn't see a grassroots Obama team, you know, like coming in to work with people who were like aghast at what had just happened. You know, I, I mean, it, I'm reminded of sadly, you know, the like throwback Thursday or whatever is, oh yeah, Obama hosted Trump the day after Hillary conceded hosted him in the fucking White House, just like that. Oh, yeah, let's bring the fascist, racist piece of shit into the White House. Hey, because normalcy. And look, I, I wish Trump would concede, but the people were left without leadership um, in this such a critical moment where we were like, yeah, well, what's going on? How did this happen? Um, but anyway, fast forwarding, you, not just for Biden, but for local elections in 2020, had success. Am I... Right about that. Tell me about how. Well, how down ballot was pretty rough in 2020. Um, okay. We have had success um, before 2020 in down ballot. Um, in 2019, uh, we helped to flip five borough councils in Lancaster County, and we had victories all over um, in the state. Um, 2018, we had some important victories as well. Um, okay. Such but, as what? Uh, like, I mean, county commissioners, school board, uh, city council, um, and um, we didn't win any district attorney race. Well, actually, I mean, reclaim Philadelphia, which is uh, one of our biggest chapters of Pennsylvania stands up, um, was instrumental in, in electing Larry Krasner. Mm -hmm. um, that what? Seven. Um, so and then this year in the primary, our progressive candidates swept. Um, we uh, we took out three incumbents, uh, Nikhil Sabal. Um, uh, Juan in Philadelphia, State Senate, um, uh, Rick Krajewski. Uh, we defended three challenges of uh, incumbents coming after our progressives. So they, you know, they tried to take out Summer Lee um, uh, and she just destroyed them. Um, and then most of the contested races. So progressives swept in the primary in Pennsylvania. Um, mm -hmm. And that really was a testament to uh, the work that Pennsylvania stands up and we weren't alone. There's other or allied organizations like CASA and make the road PA, uh, PA United, um, that, that we've worked with. But, um, you know, a lot of those candidates like Rick Krajewski and Nikhil Saval were, came out of their, their reclaimed Philadelphia, Pennsylvania stands up members. Mm. Um, so we really recruited a lot of folks to run. Um, and even when we haven't won, let me just say a word about the Jess King for Congress campaign. It may have been, I don't know this for a fact, but it may have been um, the the most robust field operation of any house race in 2018. Uh, we knocked uh, between Lancaster Stands Up and the King campaign itself. We knocked 250,000 doors. We made, I forget if it was one or two million phone calls. I mean, it was massive. 
massive enthusiasm, unlike anything seen here, right? And um, we started with an R plus six um, district, Republican advantage six. That's really, really hard to win. We would have won that district. Redistricting, um, we would have barely won it, but the, the number, I mean, you don't know for sure, but the numbers that we got would have won an R plus six district. Midway through the race was redistricting and it was good for Democrats generally in the state, uh -huh. but our district got totally fucked. Mm. Um, we became an R plus 14 district, which is virtually impossible to win. And we still outperformed uh, any Democrat in every single precinct. Um, you know, places like Lidditz went from 25% of vote share to 50% of vote share. Efforto went from 20% wow. to 40%. So massive um, uptakes. And then, and, and so this, this shows some important things for the Democratic Party, because even yeah. though we lost that race, and, you know, some would say that that was never worth, you know, fighting a real campaign over an R plus 14 district. I don't know if we would have. I don't know if Jess would have run if we'd started with an R plus 14. But R plus six, most people say, isn't even worth trying. We would have won an R plus six district. And not only that, we didn't win it, but we built this apparatus through that campaign, through the excitement. We built up volunteers. We built up leaders. And that translated into helping to flip five borough councils in conservative Lancaster County uh, in 2019. Uh, well, lots of school board races. And that's was, how we build up the bench. Right. And I was going to ask, like, what are you hearing? I mean, some of these places are also rural places. And I know you're of the mind that Democrats have been abandoning rural areas for a very long time. And I, I think have abandoned some of the place people you're talking about. What did you see in terms of like the Democratic? establishment were they present were they in you know were they fighting you like what did that look like or did people say like hey i haven't no one's knocked on my door in 10 years only republicans you know that kind of thing all of those things yeah um we definitely encounter people who say they never nobody's knocked on their door uh we certainly had to fight the democratic establishment um did you run into people who thought you were a narc uh no that's one of the great it's things only you about the county yeah yeah, because because like when I like when I went did campus. Oh, knocking and, doors. Yeah, uh, like like I would when I would knock doors in in places where Democrats had never knocked before, like you know in like working class Latino neighborhoods, people were like, are you the police? Oh, yeah, totally. No, that that, that, that <laughs> happens. Or like, are you who? Yeah, what are you? Why 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 is there a white man in front of my house? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, yeah, no. And I mean, our base is, is multiracial. So it was a, you know, combination there's, there's white people and people of color neighborhoods. There's people of color in white neighborhoods. Um, all of those, there's a lot of stories. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the, the long and short though, is that, um, knocking doors, talking to people works. Um, you have to have, it helps to have candidates that people are enthusiastic about and that right. the King campaign really, really taught us, um, that it's a whole different ball game. Uh, yeah, we did. We we had to outmaneuver and defeat the Democratic establishment in the primary, both local and national. Um, and then they kind of were impressed by us, though, and then started, you know, deferring. I mean, once once Jess was the nominee. Um, but um, they 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 because, I mean, this is a big question is like, you know, if Bernie had won, what would the Democratic establishment have done? You know? They've been like, we're starting a new party, the Bloombergites, you know, or like, what is, what was there? And so it's interesting to see that, yeah, I know if you win the primary on a local level, you might get some of that machinery or, and support from, you know, the statewide Democrats. 
Yeah, I I do think that's an interesting question. If Bernie had won the primary, I I tend to think that there would be you know some notable defections, but I think that Pelosi would have done her job, yeah. um, and and corralled uh, corralled people. I mean, that is a particular game that she has. You know, like I don't like her for a lot of things, um, but. Um, uh, I mean, it, it's interesting. It's not a monolithic system. Um, right. And I, I mean, look, I think that that a lot of people in the Democratic Party do see the writing on the wall. Uh, they see the generational shift. Um, but uh, a lot of them are, a lot of them don't. A lot of them are just totally cut off in a class bubble. They think, they think that when people like us talk, they're like, oh, they're leftists. They're these little leftists. There's these loud, obnoxious people, and they don't know, blah, blah, blah. They're not seeing that we're articulating grievances that millions of people, working people, identify with, right? They're not seeing they're, – they're, they're seeing us as, like, this annoying thorn in their side. They're not seeing us as, like, voicing and art articulating – why have been bleeding out their traditional base of the multiracial working class for decades? Why mm. they're losing that and why, you know, elections that shouldn't even be close are close because they're not giving people anything exciting. Right. Right. So, but I, I do think, you know, I mean, Kamala Harris is a, Kamala Harris is a, is an interesting uh, example of this where you see her pivoting to embrace Medicare for all and then pivoting back. Right. They're political animals. They're politicians. That's what we can expect from them. And as we demonstrate that we can win, uh, the smart ones who want to keep a political career are going to move toward that once right. we have that power. The problem right. is we don't have enough of that power yet. Can I uh, ask? So you you said something really interesting about Jess King as a candidate that excited people, and a lot. Just another sort of thing that comes up on the left is like, you know. Uh, I am on, obviously on the left, but I also feel like people on the left don't have a hard time getting their heads around what it really takes to win. And so this, this thing happens of like, when, when, when progressives lose elections, it's because the system was rigged against us. And when centrists lose, lose elections, it's because they weren't progressive enough. And it's like, well, then how's it work? Right. right. So it's like, like for, so when you say a candidate that inspires people and it gives people something to vote for, it's not just that like, it's a, you can get them to repeat like Medicare for all green new deal, defund the police. They, they don't have to say that, but what is it? What is it? What are the qualities or what does it take for a candidate to really energize people in order so that they win? I'm really glad you asked this. So I, you know, for, for decades, You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> for, for decades, I was involved in social movement organizing and didn't do anything with electoral uh, work, right? And, and basically until 2016. I mean, I paid attention to elections, but really didn't have much electoral experience besides like helping out as a volunteer sometimes on, on some progressive campaigns. Um, and so my line, if you had asked me 10 years ago, 20 years ago for certain, 10 years ago probably was like, I would de-emphasize the importance of the characteristics of the candidate because I'm like, it's about the movements pressuring them. Uh, it's, right. you know, the candidate, like we want progressive candidates, right? But I didn't, I didn't realize how much the candidate matters and how much their campaign staff matters, right? Mm. So I think what you brought up, right? When, when all consultants matter, 
<laughs> and, and you're, you know, these things, these details really matter. So Jess was, you know, had really good progressive politics, but she was also good at saying them in a way that landed in Lancaster County. She was good at speaking people's language, right? And that didn't, that didn't mean she was like watering things down. It meant that she was, you know, like instead of just throwing around the term Medicare for all, which she was for, she was signed up on it. She was attacked for it, right? She broke down what that meant for people's lives. She was warm, right? She's just a warm person. When when you asked her a question, you could tell that she stopped and listened and thought about it, not just think, what are my talking points or what's my spin here, right? She, you know, that so those qualities really, really matter. Like I think that, you know, between a centrist and a uh, you know, insurgent progressive uh candidate running in a race, all other things being equal you know, the qualities of the candidate and the know-how and savvy of the campaign staff is mm. what's going to win the race, right? Yeah. I, so, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, if there was a, a, you know, that moment in, you know, AOC's interview with the New York, New York Times that was like where AOC actually talked about pragmatic things for the first time, which was like, you know, you can't just dump $5,000 on Facebook ads. That's not enough. And I was like, oh, <laughs> She's just talking about running a good campaign now. Oh, cool, cool. I haven't heard the pragmatic side of AOC. I, I like it. Um, but uh, so oh, the other thing I was going to say is I think we're in a time also, and it goes for entertainment too. It goes for this shit that we're doing too, where it's so clear if someone is inauthentic. It's so clear when someone doesn't believe what they're saying. So that I always say this, like Warren Buffett hated Bernie, but he was like, man, what, he really believes in what he's saying. You know, like, I don't agree with that socialist, but he, he does. He believes himself. And it's like, no matter what you said about Bernie, you couldn't say he was fake. And yeah. no matter what you say about Trump, you can't say my man is fake. Because the worms have eaten his brain so much. Like, how are you going to deny them their rightful property of, you know, his cortex or whatever? But you know what I'm saying? Like, so that's a, the same thing for any candidate. Like, that translates when you see that someone, it really does believe in it. And to the point where they can explain the issue because they believe in it so much. Yeah, people are hungry for that authenticity. And then, it, and then other things like, you know fundraising, right? It matters, right? Like we're not yeah. going to win, you know, we, you, you don't take truth to a gunfight, right? And, and it's in the same way, you don't take progressive politics to electoral politics and think that it's going to win on its own without, right. you know, know how. And, and so I, I think the big lesson here, and I am like a, a broken record on this is that like, look, listeners out there, right? Like you have progressive politics, like politics isn't something you have, it's something you do. And so like in, in addition to developing your analysis, which is important, right? It's important to, to develop an analysis of what's happening. Okay, Mr. PhD candidate, go shit on analysis. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, love, I love developing my analysis, right? right? But develop some practical skills too, right? Like how to organize, how to campaign, how to message things, how to fundraise, you don't have to learn all of it, but learn something that adds to the capacity of these vehicles that we're building together, because that's how we're going to win, right? The Democratic Party is actually pretty bad at running campaigns, as we've seen. So it's not that we're losing because they're good at it. It's we're losing because we haven't developed enough of a bench of serious 
candidates and campaigners who can outmaneuver them because we've, we've seen AOC, Corey Bush, Jamal Bowman, we can outmaneuver them. We just have to scale up that strategy to a bigger level by developing more candidates, more campaigners, more organizers, more organizations. Right. It, it's, it feels like, like the next, like that has worked at, you know, up to the level of the congressional district and the test for that strategy will be a governor or Senate race. I think that's right. Um, I mean, you're welcome. I think we'll 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 win that eventually. Are we prepared to win statewide uh, yeah. races now? And you know, I mean, the the Ed Markey's uh, race says something, but he's yeah. he an incumbent too. You know, there's other factors. Sure, but it was important that he won, and that he took out a Kennedy, and you know that Nancy Pelosi stupidly endorsed. Uh, you know, those Kennedys can't take a bullet, though. Um, the uh, so. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so like, I just, I'm, I am so sick. Like there's this thing that happens in progressive campaigns that like, I'm so tired of, of the, like, you know, we had a valiant campaign and we were outspent 10 to one and we only lost by four points and like, and they had to outspend us 10 to one to almost fight us to a standstill. It's like, how many fucking times are we going to do that before we're like, we have to change up. And, and it's so I, like, you earlier you said something about how much the Democratic Party has changed, um, and I, you know I'm I am old enough. I imagine you remember this too. Like there was a time when the like progressive Democratic standard bearer was Dennis Kucinich. Yeah, um, he was like holding I have no his idea candle who in the is. wind. Yeah, right. I'm way too young. I'm like 23, so I have no idea who. Dennis? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, Denny. And and Paul Wellstone. Um, you know, oh. and, well, right. Paul was serious though. He Paul was, was a serious. serious organizer. Right. But it's like, you know, that that the one of the challenges is like we don't, you know, progressives haven't had the resources and the capacity to like contest for power in enough of the geography. It's like we, you know, there's one city council race in Oakland and we're going to go all in on that. And that's all we can do right now, because that's the number of volunteers and campaign uh, yeah. donors and campaign consultants and stuff that we have and and decent candidates. And it seems like that capacity is growing now. Um, I think it's growing dramatically uh, really fast. And the conditions are there for it to grow even more. But we, we're at the end of a 40-year period of decline in left infrastructure from unions being under attack and declining in membership numbers, the community organizations, the rise of individualism. Um, you know, the, yeah. the, the we've you know, basically like in Scotch Bowl's terms, right? Like we, we've like lost the skills of democracy. And in the past five years, we're really relearning them. Yeah. Um, and it's going to take some time to build that up. In some ways also, like, I think it's, it's interesting to think about, I mean, I think that there's been a rebellion against the leadership of both parties that started like 12, 15 years ago. But at first, unorganized, that's been in the form of abstentionism. Mm -hmm. And then the Tea Party got a head start. They started in 2009 with an electoral right. insurgency, really took off in 2012. Uh, was that when they took out Eric Cantor? I can't remember. Um, I think so. Um, and, and then, you know, culminates in Trump. We didn't get that start. Occupy Wall Street maybe was the start of our insurgency, but that was allergic to electoral politics at first. We didn't really start the electoral insurgency until you could say late 2015 with the Bernie campaign, but really not until like 2017, 2018 with the squad uh, in earnest. 
and mm -hmm. it still hasn't scaled at the level of Trump. So yeah, we're playing catch up in some ways. We're in like a race against time to like build up enough capacity to get the momentum before authoritarianism like consolidates Dude, power. We need we need the Koch brothers to just have an epiphany, switch their money around, <laughs> astroturf our shit, you know, build us up, you know, artificially inflate us, and then we're gonna win a bunch of seats. But it, the, the only living Koch brother. Isn't there one other one, but he's just been disowned or he's disowned himself? Anyway, Maybe we could get him. Get him. There's there's a woman in there somewhere. Um, I do want to talk to you though, and we've been talking about this on the show lately, uh, Jonathan, which is about messaging. And you're a Bernie guy, and yet you participated in this broad coalition and very grassroots organ like organization that wasn't necessarily a Bernie organization, wasn't necessarily a democratic socialist organization. There's a lot of hand wringing right now about the messaging. And I know you're someone who's been so on this like we need a broad message kind of tip and and in messaging is very important and of course you've got centrist democrats blaming green new deal medicare for all defund the police as if defund the police were like an actual um you know 10 point plan i wish it was i hope it will be soon but you know there's like things like um the what like the breathe act and other there's there's another act that's like anyway there's other acts that are like actually being floated. What are your thoughts and how would you push back on that? Do you think th there is any validity to those, that extreme messaging? Did that alienate people? So I, I feel like I often get right in the middle of this where I'm not happy with anyone's messaging. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so I do think, first of all, I think the lesson for the left generally is that we always have to be connecting with people in language that they can hear and, and, and talking about policy, not in these little like catchphrases, but, but translating what it means for, for uh, their lives. Right. Yeah. So as a not Schenker says, like, you know, sell the brownie, not the recipe. And we're constantly kind of like selling the recipe. Um, right. But uh, you know, so, so <laughs> I think that the phrases can help. Tell right? me more like, about baking soda. <laughs> <laughs> so like, Medicare for all and Green New Deal, for example, right? Like they, though, it's not that we can't. I, I think that those are pretty good terms, actually. Yeah. Um, but we still have to. They become basically we're in a contest with our opponents where they're trying to constantly brand those things, negatively associate them with like extremism. So we have to be constantly associating them with things that people want, right? right. With what it's going to look like in their lives for people to have Medicare for all, right? For them to not have to worry when they lose their job about losing their health insurance mm -hmm. or their health coverage, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we do have to do that work. And and also in the labels that we use, like, you know, I I was just harping on a, a, a Jacobin headline today that's, that was like, AOC is fighting for the left. That's not a winning headline. No, most Americans don't give a damn about the left. Just say Amer AOC is fighting for working people, America. right? Yeah, uh, America for all of us, right? For the ninety nine percent, those are all popular claims. Yeah, and they're they're right. So we need to be making those popular claims. And sometimes when we fall into that shorthand of like, oh, it's the progressive wing versus uh, the establishment wing of the party, that makes it feel like political class jargon to mm. most people. And mm. so we've got to tell it like it is, like. You know, these are career, oper you know, operatives and politicians 
um, who have been abandoning the working class. And we need, you know, working people deliver this win to Biden. We need Biden to deliver for working people, right? That's a message that the Lincoln Party, uh, Lincoln Project, sorry, doesn't want to have that conversation. Third way Democrats don't want to have that conversation. They want to be talking about the left and what the left wants and its entitlement and its purity. They don't want to be talking about what working class people, black, brown, and white, rural and urban, need in this moment of crisis. That's a conversation we always need to be having. Yeah. Last it's, part. You sorry. know, no, I was just going to say, every time someone mentions the left, I'm, I'm always like, oh, but they said our name. You know, that means we're <laughs> real and we're not just a figment of our imagination. But you're totally right that like, you know, it is we, the things we're fighting for are supported by the majority of people. It's okay to be left. It's okay to be progressive. But yeah, when you're talking about issues, always reframing it as the concrete benefits. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. Speaking for that majority, I mean, when I do messaging and organizing strategy workshops with different organizations, you know, like we we worked with Sunrise as they were forming. We've worked with uh, some of the folks who went into Justice Democrats and uh, worked with a lot of different organizations over the years. One of the biggest challenges that just kind of plagues our groups is we have to be telling a story of a big us that millions of Americans see themselves in. And mm -hmm. we accidentally tell a story of a small us, of like activists, um, that that feels like a clubhouse that's inaccessible to other people. So we always have mm -hmm. to be recalibrating for that big us. But I want to stick it to the Democratic Party for a second because they're yeah. doing a far worse job on messaging, right? And you know, everybody talks about Democrats have a unquote messaging problem. You know, I mean, uh, George Koff's written great stuff on this. Drew Weston's written great stuff on this. Part of it, I really agree with, right? I've learned a lot from them where it's like uh, they're rational thinkers. They make rational arguments and Republicans are more authoritarian and go more with the gut. There's points to be made there. But the fundamental problem of the Democratic Party and its quote unquote messaging problem is that it can't decide whether it is trying to communicate and appeal to its traditional multiracial working class base, which is its historical strength. Chelted or, win. or if it's messaging for the donor class and corporate interests in Wall Street. And there is no message that works for both of those, right? Mm. It's paralysis in deciding who it's messaging for is its quote unquote messaging problem. It's not just like it's inherently bad at spin. Well, that and like literally these are careerists who are, totally insulated within the top 10% of the economic spectrum, which has become totally cut off from the bottom 80 to 90%. So it is also like people who are profoundly out of touch yes. with the experiences and the hardships of working class people. There's that too. And, and people who were like, you know, have been doing the same job for, you know, 20 years and were like, well, this worked when we tried to elect Zell Miller or whatever, like, who? <laughs> <laughs> and and that I what, am too. what you just, just said no to is like, I think so much more makes sense in the Democratic Party when you realize that there's a lot of people who would rather maintain their jobs and their status in a party that loses than lose their jobs or their status in a party that wins. Oh, God, dude, that was like, I felt like you punched me in the stomach yeah wow that was like ooh, that's that's some fire right there you'd rather they'd rather maintain their status in a party that loses absolutely jonathan that, that that's also true of show business 
I think it's true of a lot of fields. <laughs> um, okay, we have to sort of wrap up. So, um, and by sort of, I mean like, you know, let's take 10 or whatever. But um, <laughs> I wanted to, you know, now that Biden is the president-elect, he's not in office yet. We don't know if we'll have to stop a Trump coup in the meantime. Um, do you feel like the Biden campaign understands who gave them in this victory? that there were disaffected voters and that it actually had nothing to do with them. I think your initial um, takeaway has sort of been mine that actually this really was just about Trump. And even that was just barely enough. Um, do you think they know that? And do you think they are actually going to deliver for the American people? I mean, I, we, we've talked a little bit about, about Schumer, but did you get any like ribbon or prize or thank you from the Biden campaign? <laughs> did uh Biden won Pennsylvania, right? Biden did it. Biden won Pennsylvania. Yeah, Biden did it. Joe yeah, Biden. Biden didn't do it. And you know one another thing Biden didn't do is Biden didn't help any of the down ballot candidates. They didn't even ID for the down ballot candidates. So when they were doing door knocking and phone calls, they didn't even ID for like ask, are you voting for this candidate? Really? Um, yeah, I mean, terrible. So I hope they've learned some kind of lesson on that. I hope they've learned a lesson that like when you just attack Trump and don't make it at all about the Republican Party, you know, maybe yes, people are going to, you know. So um, here's here's the thing. I don't know if they've learned any lessons. I don't know. I don't know if they've learned any lessons from the election. Um, here's one important reason why they may not have learned a lesson. There's an article in 538, which is not usually my favorite news source uh, or, or commentary source, but this, this is a good one. Um, it came out in early 2018, and it was something along the lines of, if anyone says they know how Democrats are going to win this year, be skeptical, right? Mm. And they broke down how when you look at um, working class disaffected voters, versus affluent suburban reliable voters who cross over back and forth, that um, they're basically pretty close in terms of who is more movable. In fact, mm. the working class disaffected voters were a bit more movable, but only a few points, right? Okay. okay. However, whoever you engage in field, in ads, in orienting your campaign around, you are going to be able to move some people. So what's happened over the past four years is the Democratic Party decided that its path is the affluent, reliable voters, that sliver of people who right. can cross over. And they went for them. And fortunately, they persuaded some of them. You know, it's not that their strategy didn't work entirely, right? They Because you put in effort and it, it tends to work where you put in effort. Now, this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, though, right, where they're like, see, we did this and these people turned out, right? But they're not investing in these areas. Now, we have counterfactuals because we invested in these areas and we saw uh, a lot of pickup. You know, we mm -hmm. estimate that we, you know, looking at our numbers, we delivered about 54,000 uh, voters uh, to that, that vote margin, um, which is pretty important in terms of the vote, the, the, the final vote margin. And that's mostly the disaffected voters. Um, so we can see that by investing in these areas, it also works. Hopefully they're seeing some of that math too. Um, I'm not that confident that they are because they've got, you know, it's like we were just saying, they've got a whole bunch of operatives who have an investment in telling a story of how what they did works. 
Right. Them right. And, and supporting so their own BS and being and being like, you were perfect. It was you, yeah. Mr. Biden. It was Jill. It was really Jill. Like that's yeah, there are people who are invested in just inflate over inflating these, yeah. yeah. Um paper. And then dolls. they say, well, it was the defund the police people. And they're 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 looking, they're desperate to 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 point fingers. But I mean that those issues, I mean th- Really, the Democrats needed to fucking talk about the economy in a way that means something to people. That's right. the big thing. Yeah. You know, Biden really did not do that well. He did some populist things a little bit well, you know, like when he said, like, you know, I I knew people like Trump growing up who felt entitled to everything. That was good. That um, was. Yes. And that was it. That was good. Um, <laughs> you know, so but I, I, I do think what we had talked about before is the real hope. I do think that Biden. um there's reason to think from what we know what went on with the disagreements with Biden and Rahm Emanuel in the early Obama administration, that Biden's theory is that administrations need to deliver in big ways. Um, in okay, I'm not familiar months. with that. I just know that he's now maybe floating him for transportation secretary, blah, blah, blah. Well, Rahm Emanuel's floating himself. Um, <laughs> uh, so we'll see whether he gets it. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he did, but uh, apparently- Rah- Rahm Emanuel is super into self-floating. Yeah. I mean, the rumor I heard, and this is totally self-flagellation, and I can't confirm my source, but is that Biden wanted bankers in handcuffs within the first couple of months of the Obama administration. And Rahm Emanuel was like, no fucking way. Um, It's never too late, baby. It's never too (laughs) late. There we go. (laughs) Um, So I, I hope that's true. Um, but, and also it's really clear that Chuck Schumer, I mean, he's explicitly saying that that they have to deliver in a big way. So hopefully they understand the magnitude of the crisis and that the democratic party really doesn't have a hope, uh, for winning over these voters who voted against Trump, if they're not actually delivering and making people's lives meaningfully better. Absolutely. Uh, regardless, we've got to make noise. We've got to create a popular demand and not let Tea Party 2.0, which will be worse and probably more violent, um, create the popular demand um, for, you know, obstructionism. It's pure Kool-Aid at this point, but we've got the Orchata Armada. Shout out to everyone who knows what that means. Can I can I ask one more question? NATO clearly doesn't want to respect the Orchata Armada, y'all, but that is the Tea Party of the left. One last question and then we got to peace out, NATO. I got a podcast to edit. Sorry. Uh, I, am I correct that Pennsylvania has an open governor and Senate race in 2022? They do. So what does your next two years look like? Hell no. Um, (laughs) I mean, basically look, the, the, the general math of the, the party out of power, um, uh, or the party that controls the white house in the midterms, it tends to get slaughtered. Now, actually little known story is that Trump changed that math in 2018. They did lose the house. But Republicans turned out in 2018 at, his, at, at numbers that decimated 50 years prior of the, the party that controls the White House um, in the midterm. I mean, they, they, they had very, very high turnout. And we saw it in our district, R plus 14, where we actually hit our win number for an R plus 14 district, our number that we thought we had to win to vote. But Republicans turned out so high that we still lost that race by 18 points. Mm. Um, so it would. So anyway, what that says, Republicans turned out because they saw Trump, the base saw Trump as at least trying to deliver for him and riling up the base. So the only hope we have is for 
Biden and Democrats in Congress to actually deliver something right. um, uh, or at the very least really fight for something and show that Republicans are the ones obstructing it. I just would love we've been talking about, you know, uh, there's there's talk of, um, you know, abolishing student debt up to fifty thousand dollars per person. Like. Imagine being on the other side of that discussion. Imagine being a Republican having to be like, well, no, you do um bankers or people like it's such a losing or universal argument. daycare, right? Or universal fucking daycare, any of those, but like everyone can get behind these things. Everyone can. And it's true. Universal daycare maybe is more is actually more inclusive because to have college debt, you have had have to have gone to college, you know, um, but like and student debt is what I mean. But like it just there the to use. I don't even know how to use your your language, Jonathan, but I do think um there are these fights that are just there for the taking, there for the picking that Democrats need to pick up the mantle of. And if they did and well and wielded it with real power, the other side would crumble. Like, I mean, rhetorically crumble. Like they wouldn't have much to actually fight with. Um, anywho, uh, we have to leave it there. But thank you so much, Jonathan Smucker. Everybody follow him on the Twitter, uh, at Jonathan Smucker. And he's got two books, Hegemony How To... Or, or didn't you have a book before Hegemony How To? Am I no, wrong about I've that? No, I've got chapters and books, but I have okay. a second book coming out next year. That's right. So look out for Fuckers at the Top, a practical guide for overthrowing America's ruling class. I love it. Hegemony How To, a roadmap for radicals. Get that. You know it's going to be good because Jonathan is all about uh, you know writing in a language that is accessible, which I love. And uh, thank you so much for being here and be well. Come you back too. soon. You too. Really fun talking with both of you. So good to see you, Jonathan. And Thanks I also, we used to, we used to work together in the same organization in New York. Wild. So long ago. So long ago. Wait, uh, oh. wait you're 23 now. So that was like, you were like, dude, I just start, I, I'm about to lap you. You know, I like live a lot of lives. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jonathan, take care. And NATO green, tell the people where they can find your ass. Uh, at NATO Green on Twitter, Mr. NATO Green on Instagram. Uh, the, uh, check out my albums on Bandcamp where I actually get revenue from people buying them. The Whiteness album is excellent. NATO, be well. We will see you very, very soon. Thank you. And thank you all for being here. <laughs> um, stay tuned on Sunday night. We got another show. John Fugelsang, comedian and uh, Sirius XM host, is going to be with us as well as Erica Andiola of Raices, Texas. We're going to talk about uh, immigration, first 100 days of Biden, and um, whether he's heading in the right direction. And remember, you guys, don't just bitch about it. Be about it. Bye.